Hello, everyone. Good morning. Aloha. This is Texas. Howdy. Well, and it's also Palm Sunday, which is often been an interesting uh, title for this Sunday. You know, it's called Palm Sunday because of the palm fronds that, it, that the disciples pulled probably from Jericho, the city of palms, as they made their way up from Jericho to Jerusalem. But it was a, an act of worship in preparation for the coming king, which they fully expected would happen. And they hoped it would happen, even though Jesus had told them a num- num- number of times that it wasn't going to happen. But uh, it's also called, as Jim said, the, tri- the triumphal entry. There's at least the act of Jesus riding down the, um, the slope of the Mount of Olives on the back of the donkey. And it's sort of ironic that it's called the triumphal entry when Jesus is weeping because he knows he's going to be rejected. It's like, where's the triumph in this? The triumphal entry is the next coming of Jesus, not the, not the first coming. first coming was kind of a downer as far as Israel goes, but the second coming, <laughs> that is going to be a triumphal entry where Jesus is not on the back of a donkey but on the back of a white horse with all of us and with a lift of his eyebrow, or really the word from his mouth, the battle stops and he begins the kingdom that uh, everyone was hoping that he would begin the first coming. But uh, what a wonderful anticipation. And as Jim said, I love your, uh, your perspective, Jim, of of um, how things can change so quickly. And in our lives, we see that as well. I mean, have you ever noticed what a day can, what difference a day can make? Sometimes when I go to bed at night, I think, okay, this time yesterday when I was laying here, wow, everything that's happened in this day. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes I've traveled halfway around the world in that 24 hours. Amazing. Well, I read about a construction worker who wrote this memo to his boss asking for sick leave. This was a construction worker who was a mason, actually, who building walls up on a, sky, a high building. And this is what he said. He said, when I got to, to the construction site, I found that the storm the night before had knocked off some bricks around the top. So I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building and hoisted up a couple of barrels full of bricks. When I had fixed the damaged area, there were a lot of bricks left over. So I went to the bottom and began releasing the line. Unfortunately, the barrel of bricks was much heavier than I was. And before I knew what was happening, the barrel started coming down fast, jerking me up. I decided to hang on. This was his first mistake. Since I was too far off the ground by then to jump, and halfway up, I met the barrel of bricks coming down fast. I received a hard blow on my shoulder. Then I continued up to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers pinched and jammed in the pulley. When the barrel hit the ground, it burst its bottom, allowing the bricks to spill out. Now I was heavier than the barrel. So I started down again at high speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel coming up fast and received several injuries to my shins. When I hit the ground, I landed on the pile of spilled bricks, getting several painful cuts and deep bruises. At this point, at this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of the rope. The barrel came down fast. 
giving me another blow on my head and putting me in the hospital. Therefore, I humbly request sick leave. (laughs) Well, the story is an urban legend. It isn't true. Boy, don't you wish it was. I've seen, uh, I think this, this story was also illustrated in the movie Babe. You remember about the pig? I don't know if you remember that movie, but I think they illustrated that story in it. But I love that because it, even though the story is an urban legend, it shares something that is very true. And that is that sometimes life comes at us fast and sometimes it, it hits us like a ton of bricks. And it, it, it can hurt in ways that aren't nearly as funny as this guy's accident. Maybe it was an auto accident that we lived through or didn't. Uh, a health crisis. Maybe it's a financial situation that you've dealt with or a stock market crash or an unfair or an unexpected layoff or a rebellious child or a rebellious spouse or a rebellious parent. Maybe it's a personal failure. Bricks come at us in all different ways throughout life. And sometimes, many times, when you don't have the Lord, especially, you wonder how in the world you're going to keep your sanity. We look back at times like that with an amazing irony. We as Christians can look back in hindsight and see the power of God that somehow got us through those things. But at the time, as... um, Charles Dickens wrote in a a line that's often quoted, but it has nothing to do with this uh, principle, but it says it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. We can look back on it and see that that was true. At the time, it was nothing but the worst of times. But in hindsight, we can somehow look back at those terrible times that the Lord allowed us to go through, and in hindsight say, in a way, those were the best of times because of what God taught us and brought us through. Scripture gives us the gift of perspective. And that is that God doesn't merely show up after the bricks have fallen to comfort us and to give us strength, but God has somehow been sovereignly over the whole situation. Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, right in chapter 1. So we continue our series where we take a single message from each book of the Bible. We are at 2 Corinthians, a book that the Apostle Paul wrote on his third missionary journey. You remember last time when we looked at 1 Corinthians, we talked about the fact that Paul lived in Corinth for 18 months, for a year and a half, on his second missionary journey. Then on the third journey, he writes to this church. When he was living at Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And then you remember in uh, Acts chapter 19, they ran him out of Ephesus because of the the riot that occurred there. And then Paul made his way over to Macedonia, which is modern Greece today. And from there, he writes 2 Corinthians. We aren't uh, sure where he was in Macedonia. It could have been Philippi, could have been Thessalonica, could have been Berea. We're not sure. Wherever he was... Um, the Lord laid on his heart to write this wonderfully personal book of 2 Corinthians. And the introduction here gives us uh, a nice uh, sort of lay of the land. It kind of starts us off as it should and heads us in the direction that uh, gives us our theme. So look at verse 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace to you from the Lord. This is sort of Paul's version of the ironic blessing, or the not the ironic, but the ironic the uh, the priestly blessing from Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. Remember that where it says the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord uh, what what else is it? Lift his face upon you or his countenance on you and give you peace. This is uh, Paul's version of that. Grace and peace from the Lord. It's basically his blessing on them as he starts out. And the New Testament, though, gives us a greater context who this Lord is. In, the, in Numbers chapter 6, it just says, the Lord bless you. But when Paul uses this common phrase, he says, the Lord, Jesus Christ. He gives a greater context of where this blessing and where this peace comes from, from our Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And it gives a wonderful context, sort of a foundation for what Paul is about to say now. Now you could say that the, the barrel of bricks is about to come down, but it also is in a context of grace and peace. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sort of sounds like a Dr. Seuss verse, doesn't it? Comfort, we're comforted by the comfort we receive by God, and we comfort others by the comfort. It's like you have to sort of outline it to figure out what he's saying. But let's just take it slowly and look at the details because they are worth looking at. Paul begins by blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He is merciful and he provides all comfort. Notice, all comfort in all our afflictions. So all to all, it's a one-to-one. When we experience affliction, we can know it is not a contradiction of God's character. He is the God of all mercy. He is a good God. He is the God of all comfort. And when we experience affliction, it's not a contradiction of his character. He is still a God of mercy. The word that Paul uses here for comfort is from a word Paul writes in the Greek language, uh, parakaleo. We get... It's sort of a compound word, para, you can think of parallel, it means beside, and kaleo, it means to call. So to call beside, it doesn't just mean to call alongside, but it has the idea of coming alongside somebody for encouragement or for comfort or to, to help them. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as this, used this word in reference to the Holy Spirit. Remember when he said that the comforter will come or the helper, you might have that in your translation. I think it's in John 14. But this comforter is one who comes alongside. 
I was fascinated to read that when the New Testament translators in Africa went to the Kari language uh, there in equatorial Africa, they came to the word parakaleo for you know comfort or, or to call alongside, particularly with reference to the Holy Spirit, and they struggled to figure out a word that worked in that language. And one day the translators noticed this this group of porters who were hauling who were hauling uh, uh, baggage on their shoulders going into the jungle and there was one guy with them that didn't have anything and initially the translators figured that this this guy was the foreman or this guy was the boss and so they asked about it and come to find out no this guy wasn't the boss his job was to make sure that if someone fell down or if someone dropped their load or if someone couldn't uh, carry their load it was this guy's job to pick up the load and carry it and in that language, it, the Kari language, this was referred to as the one who falls down beside us. So the translators had their word. They used that word in reference to the Parakaleo Holy Spirit. God comforts us. And notice there in verse 4, we read it, but let's look at it again. Why does God comfort us? So that, there's the purpose. He comforts us for this purpose, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, the Lord doesn't just come alongside us so that we can feel better. The goal in God comforting us is not just so that we can get out of that, whew, glad that's done, but so that we are equipped so that we may be able, Paul says, that we are equipped to come alongside others and comfort them. And notice the God who comforts us in all our affliction equips us to comfort others in any affliction. From all to any. Both are just as inclusive, but the second one shows the great variety that God comforts you in all affliction. Every affliction that you've gone through, He comforts you so that you are equipped to comfort somebody else in whatever they're going through. There is a purpose. So when you struggle and God shows up in your life, it's not just for you and it's not just for me. It's so that we are equipped to comfort other people. Now, keep your finger here in chapter 1, and let's look at a couple of other verses throughout this book, because this is not the only time he mentions it. It's very much a theme that we find ourselves throughout. Look in chapter 2, verse 6. Um, remember, I don't know if you remember in uh, 1 Corinthians, he talked about a, uh, an individual who had fallen into sin, an immoral sin there in Corinth, which was sort of par for the course, and Paul challenged the church to rebuke this guy. Well, evidently he repented. And verse 6 is sort of a follow-up. It says, Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. In other words, you've done this enough to him. Verse 7, So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Same word. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Look at chapter 7. Verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 4. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. See that? 
You got comfort and affliction right there together. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us, how? By the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Look down at verse 13. For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So you begin to see a theme here that the comfort that happens by God, happens through other people. You see, Paul was comforted when Titus came, and then we're told that Titus was comforted when he came to them. There was this mutual comfort that God was using through people. Look at chapter 13, very last chapter, verse 11, almost the very end of the book, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. What does that sound like? Sounds like how he began. May the God of peace and love be with you. So he ends in the same way that he begins, saying that the God of love and peace is going to be with you, and comfort is the context. So back to chapter 1. So you see this is all throughout the book, and it really gives us our first principle that we see in the text. And here it is. If we want God's comfort, we must surround ourselves with God's people. If we want God's comfort, we must surround ourselves with God's people, because that's how God comforts his people, is with his people. We see that clearly here in the text. Paul says that we, are com- we comfort one another in our affliction with the comfort that God gives us in our affliction. We comfort one another. God works through that. He says, when Titus came, I was comforted. When Titus came to you, he was comforted. God comforts us with one another. If we want God's comfort, we must surround ourselves with God's people. And let me say the opposite. If you refuse to surround yourself with God's people... God's comfort is going to be choked. One of the greatest aspects or avenues that God has to comfort you in your life comes through the body of Christ. And if you're not plugged into the body of Christ, then comfort is going to be a challenge for you. That's one of the things that's been such a challenge for all of us this last year, hadn't it? As we've sort of been stuck on islands from each other, And God bless Zoom. What would we have done if we hadn't had some kind of connection with one another, with faces and with voices and with expressions and with prayers and with encouragement? But boy, what a blessing it is to actually see a real face, you know, and not just a computer screen. But it's not just fellowship. It goes beyond that to expressing to one another our struggles, It's not just a matter of slapping people on the back and saying, boy, great to see you again, as valuable as that is. It goes beyond that to sharing afflictions with one another. 
Because when we do that, then we're able to comfort one another. God comforts through his people. And this was even the case for the great apostle Paul. He was no, um, he was no ivory tower saint. He was, he was a Christian that got involved with people just as he encouraged other people to get involved with others. Years ago, Ray and Judy Williams' son, David, was killed when he fell at Red River Gorge. And Ray said this, this is a quote he said after the fact. He said, I used to wonder if I should go to the funeral home when someone had a tragedy because I always felt so awkward and I didn't know what to say. But I'll never ask that again. I'll always go. It's not what you say, but your presence that makes the difference. Loners in the Christian life are those that don't grow to their full potential. Sometimes it's easy to just kind of be a loner in the Christian life. We feel like it's safe, that I don't have to deal with your stuff, and I sure ain't going to tell you about my stuff. And as a result, we're stuck in our stuff. We don't have anyone to encourage us or to give us insight. I think it was... Was it Einstein that said you can't get out of a problem with the same knowledge you had that got you into the problem to begin with? You need help outside yourself. Otherwise, you're stuck with the hole that you've dug. This is what we do with one another. This is why Paul goes on in verse 5 to explain. He expands a little further on this. Look at verse 5. He says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. See the comparison? Just as, so also. Just as the sufferings of Christ, so also the comfort of Christ. The sufferings are ours in abundance. The comfort is ours in abundance. So I won't have you turn a lot, but turn one more time to chapter 4 and look at verse 10. Keep your hand there in chapter 1. We'll come back. But look at 4.10. Uh, look back up at 4.7 and work our way down to 10. Paul writes in four, chapter 4, verse 7, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So pause there. He's saying we're in these weak, frail bodies, these earthen vessels, for a reason. The purpose is so that the surpassing greatness of God's power is shown to be His power, and not our power. We are weak, and it's that, that highlights His strength. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. So n- notice what he's doing. He's saying the earthen vessel God's power. He, he's making these comparisons. Earthen vessel, God's power. We are afflicted in every way. That's the earthen vessel, but not crushed. Why? Because of God's power. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Oh, I love those four words. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So back to chapter 1. Do you see what he's saying? 
in chapter 4, he says the same thing in just a little hint of it here in chapter 1, verse 5. Again, look at, look at it again. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort abundant through Christ. The sufferings of Christ doesn't mean, you know, any, any sense that Christ is still suffering in, a, in an atonement manner. His atonement, one and done, as, as Peter said on the cross. He died once for all. There is no more that Jesus has to suffer in the sense that he pays for our sins. That is over. So what does this mean? He's talking about the body of Christ, not the body of Christ in the sense of the resurrected body that's seated at the right hand of the Father, but the body of Christ that is us. We suffer. And when we suffer, Christ suffers. Remember what Paul said to, uh, what Christ said to Paul, then Saul, on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church, but Jesus took it as a personal persecution because we are the body of Christ. So when Paul says that the sufferings of Christ, when the afflictions we go through in our lives are ours in abundance, we're not left alone with that. We also have comfort that is abundant through Christ. Not only because of Christ we suffer, but through Christ we have comfort. That is such a great, great insight. God matches abundant affliction with abundant comfort. One of the greatest lessons I've learned from scuba diving is a little trick called pressure equalization. And it's a trick that if you don't get, you don't scuba dive. You call it snorkeling because you don't go very deep. But pressure equalization, you know, uh, have you ever, like, if you've not scuba dived but been in a swimming pool and you go deep, you don't have to go but like six or eight feet and your ears start hurting. It's like, wow, I can back up to the top. But when you have oxygen continually going in, it's really tough to do when you don't have a scuba tank on. I've tried to do it in a pool, but that is to, to blow through your nose or to swallow, to, to force air into your inner ear to push back out at the, for, of the, at the water that's pushing in on your inner ear. It's the pressure pushing on your inner ear that hurts. So what you've got to do is either blow in your nose like you do on an airplane or swallow a lot, and it, it forces air to push back against your inner ear. And you can go 200 feet under the water and be perfectly comfortable if you have equalization, the, that the pressure pushing out is equal to the pressure pushing in. I love that illustration because that is the spiritual life. Paul says we got affliction, but we also got comfort pushing back, and we're equalized. It's the same idea. The incredible pressure that's put on us as a believer doesn't implode us, doesn't, doesn't damage our inner ear in the sense, but it pushes back and it allows us to make it through. As Paul said, the greater the affliction, the greater the comfort, and the greater the ability, therefore, to comfort other people who need it as well. Listen to Oswald Chambers, what he wrote. He said, if you're going to be used by God, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you useful in his hands. That is a mature perspective. Let me read that again because, boy, that is true. He says, if you're going to be used by God, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you useful in his hands. 
Don't answer out loud, but did you grow up in a broken home? Have you had an alcoholic parent or an abusive parent? Have you ever lost a job without cause unexpectedly? If you have, and some of these I have, you got something very valuable to give others that go through that affliction. For example, I can look, and I have many times, into the eyes of many men who have lost their jobs. And I can tell them, I can say, friend, without a fact, God is on the other side of this. I know it because he's been that way in my life. And I'll share particular verses that God has used, particular wisdom that God has given me through other people that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't gone through it. And the same with the, my nomadic childhood, with the multitude of divorces that my parents went through. I don't, I can't even, I could count, I'm trying to think. There's a lot, I mean, four or five. Between, between the two of them, both my parents were married four or five times. And I had a very nomadic childhood. And it was tough. But God used that to draw me to Him in a way that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had struggled like I like I did, and still do with that. It doesn't mean that the affliction isn't still there, but there is an equalization that pushes back and, and, and enables you and equips you, not only to make it through it, but now you're also helping others make it through it as well. Notice how Paul puts it here in verse 6. He says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, It is for your comfort which is effective and the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Verse 7, And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharings of our comfort. Does that sound like your life? I hope it does. Because you haven't gone through what you've gone through for nothing. You haven't lost that parent or that brother or sister or that spouse for nothing. God has allowed you to go through that struggle for others, not just for you. He hasn't allowed you to hurt just so he can get you through it and you can say, praise God, that's over. But praise God, that's over. Now, Lord, who can I help with what you've taught me? I'll tell you, most of any bit of wisdom that you think I ever share with you from this text comes not just from the text, but from God filtering this text through the experiences of my life. And can I tell you, it's been a tough life. And it ain't over yet. And the same's true with you. But I'll tell you also, God shows up in wonderful ways through, through the difficulties of life. P.T. Forsyth wrote, wrote these words. He said, You must live with people to know their problems and live with God in order to solve them. You must live with people to know their problems and live with God in order to solve them. I like that. Have you ever considered that one of the greatest contributions that you make to the church is that you've had a life of great pain? Because God equips you, comforts you, that you can be equipped to comfort others. Paul said God comforts in affliction. But you say, yeah, but, you know, 
you don't know my affliction. I mean, I get it bad. I get it really bad. Really? Let's look at Paul's affliction. Look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Notice the extremes there in verse 8. Burdened excessively beyond our strength, we despaired even of life. The original word there for despaired implies that there's no way out. In other words, we were as good as dead, Paul says. You ever had that situation? You're in a no-win situation, a no-exit situation, that if God doesn't show up, you're done. Your burden was so bad, you figured that your life was at stake. I love Paul's vulnerability here. He's not just this great apostle Paul that writes these stained glass epistles. But he says, I was struggling. I was struggling so much that I thought, this is it. We despaired even of life. That's part of what helps us connect with other people is being vulnerable and sharing honestly that you're not this stalwart, stained glass person, but that you struggle. And then if God doesn't show up, you're done. This total helplessness has a purpose, Paul says. We just read it, but let's read it again. And how often we miss this precious truth of verse 9. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that, here's the purpose, we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What a profound purpose. Impossible situations force us to trust the God of impossibilities. A God who can raise the dead, that pretty much takes care of everything else. Because when you're dead, you're done. But if God can raise the dead, you're never done. There's nothing impossible with a God who can raise the dead. Notice Paul doesn't dwell on the pain here in verse 9, but on the purpose of the pain. We have the sentence of death within ourselves so that. Here's the purpose. So that, Paul says. We were as good as dead, but God raises the dead. God put us in this situation to teach us not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in Him. And sometimes you don't know if you're trusting God until all you have to trust is God. You think you're trusting God. And then God says, all right, let's see if you're trusting me. And then all of a sudden, whoa, am I really trusting God? Well, here's the second principle. And it's just as difficult as the first. (laughs) Our purpose in pain is more than relief, but comfort for others. Our purpose in pain is more than relief, but comfort for others. We have to learn to look beyond our pain toward its purpose. It has a purpose. God doesn't just allow us to hurt so that he can fix it and so that we'll praise him. That's just step one. But then we build on that and we reach out on the lives of other people. 
But without personal affliction, we got no comfort to offer other people. You can't give what you don't have. But when God gives it, how can you keep it? It is such good news. I mean, the gospel alone is great news. That Jesus died for your sins, you don't have to go to hell. All you got to do is believe that he died for you. And your sins are forgiven. That's great. Now what about all the stuff we deal with in life? Well, there's still good news. There's still a gospel of life, as it were, that we can share with other people. Our God is not a sadist that enjoys watching us squirm. He allows us to get in situations of total helplessness, not because he's cruel, but because he's compassionate. And that's the only way often we'll learn. He teaches us something that we would learn no other way and in no other place. B. Simpson writes, If we would be enlarged, we must accept all that God sends us to develop and expand our spiritual life. We are so content to abide at the old level that God often has to compel us to rise higher by bringing us face to face with situations that we cannot meet without a much greater measure of his grace. It is as though he has to send a tidal wave to flood the lowlands where we dwell to compel us to move to the hills beyond. And that's true, isn't it? We'd, we'd stay right where we are if God didn't force us to grow. You can react in two different ways when God brings afflictions in your life. You can draw close to God, or you can push away from Him. If you're looking at life and afflictions, that the only goal for afflictions is God get me out, then God can seem a cruel God. But if, like Paul, you say, wait a minute, I realize I'm in affliction, and it's not just for me. God is taking me through this affliction without a quick solution so that I can learn something so that on the other side of this, I could be more effective for him. You see, God's not just allowing you to squirm right now. saying, God, why don't you answer my prayer? What's the holdup to to give me relief? The holdup is he is teaching you, he is training you, he is equipping you making you more effective so that when you do finally get on the other side, now, boom, you can comfort others with the comfort that you've received. But boy, if it just happened like that, what would we ever learn? Not a lot. Look beyond your pain to the purpose of your pain. Paul points to his past and what he learned from it. Here, he wrote about it. And he filters his struggles through the sovereignty of God. And we should do the same. Have have you done that? Have you filtered your struggles in your past through God's sovereignty? Have you taken every disappointment in life and run it through the Romans 8.28 filter? Through the Genesis 50.20 filter? These filters that say you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? Because God hasn't just allowed you to go through these things because he doesn't like you but he allows you to go through these things to equip you to be more effective. Look back at the painful moments in your life. Look back at the personal failures of your life and filter them through the sovereignty of God. How did God comfort you? What did God teach you? Was it through a person? Was it through a scripture? Was it through a song? What did the Lord use? Use that to comfort somebody else. 
because believe me, they need it. I love the phrase, never lose the good from a bad experience. So how do we get beyond our pain toward its purpose? Well, look at verse 10 and 11. Paul writes of the God who delivered us from so great a peril of death and who will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet, let me read that again. The God, verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping, helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on your behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Prayer plays a pivotal role in affliction. Prayer by the church is the key to bringing God's deliverance from affliction, and then praise is the natural response when that happens, of when we are delivered. I love uh, what the writer Kenneth Wilson says when he was growing up as a little boy in Pittsburgh. He was the youngest son and had to go to bed first, and so he was all alone. When they made him go to bed, he was up there all by himself, upstairs on the third floor in the dark bedrooms. And these are his words. I love the way he writes it. He says, It felt like a long way up the steps, especially because they did not have electricity above the second floor, and a gas light had to be turned on and then turned off once I was settled. That bed in that room on the third floor seemed to be at the end of the earth remote from human habitation, close to unexplained noises and dark secrets. At my urging, my father would try to stop the windows from rattling and wedging wooden matches into the cracks, but they always rattled in spite of his efforts. Sometimes he would read me a story, but inevitably the time would come when he would turn out the light and shut the door, and I would hear his steps on the stairs growing fainter and fainter and fainter. Then all would be quiet except for the rattling windows and my cowering imagination." Once I remember my father said, Would you rather I leave the light on and go downstairs or turn the light out and stay with you for a while? I always chose his presence with darkness over absence with light. Think about that last line. I always chose his presence with darkness over his absence with light. You know, even in our darkest days and the afflictions that Paul describes in his own life that we can so easily identify with, it's the fact that someone else is there that gives us comfort. That we're in the darkness, but we're not in the darkness alone. At the very least, our Heavenly Father is with us. Have you thought about the fact that even when you're alone, you're never alone? I mean, you really are never alone, even when you're alone. Jesus made that promise, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. If you need God's comfort, then you need God's people. If you've received God's comfort, then comfort God's people. It goes both ways, back and forth, doesn't it? So here's our principles one more time. If we want God's comfort, we must surround ourselves with God's people. And second, our purpose in pain is more than relief, but comfort for others. 
Second Corinthians is a great book all by itself, so wonderfully personal, vulnerable by Paul. But he begins at this wonderful place of reminding us that the comfort that we receive in affliction is not just so we can feel better. It's so that we can be the arms and legs and body of Christ into the lives of other people that desperately need it as well. Let's pray. Our Father, it's only as we look back at our lives through the filter of your sovereignty that we can say that it was the best of times and the worst of times. Because in the moment, all we feel is the worst. All we can sense in the midst of our affliction seems to be your heavy hand upon us and your lack of mercy rather than your abundant mercy and comfort. Thank you for Paul's words here that we've read in 2 Corinthians 1 of the great truth that you want to comfort us through people and you want to comfort people through us. So help us draw near to you to find that moment of vulnerability where we can make a phone call and reach out to someone that we trust, someone that's not going to reject us when we're honest. And give us the the humility to receive the comfort that will pour forth from this individual or from these people. Thank you that the body of Christ is around us and available to us. Flawed people helping flawed people, pointing to a God who is perfect and gracious. And Lord, we thank you for the ultimate hope that we have, that even though we do have great affliction in this life, even the great apostle Paul had it, that we have a hope that looks beyond this life to resurrection. And ultimately, that's what we celebrate at Easter, is the the Jesus who has gone before us, the firstborn from the dead, raised from the tomb, having died for our sins, and promising that one day he will come back and take us to be where he is, that we may be with him forever and forever. That is our hope. Lord, we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.